This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. There are times when you're doing a show like this when you just sort of despair. When you, uh, when you look at the information that's out there that's being widely disseminated and widely believed and which you know to be false, that um, you just sort of throw your hands up. We'll do a few, for instances, I think, as this hour evolves, but uh, I do have to say that sometimes you just, you just have to take a deep breath and keep plodding on. We mentioned on uh, last week's program we were going to be speaking with the good people of Radar Magazine. Uh, we were not able to get to them uh, in time for this week's show, but we will have them on next week. Talking about plastic surgery for people in Hollywood and the rest of us. It should be fun. And we're not sure if we can pull this off, but we do have a line into the man who developed Evil Knievel's Sky Cycle. The rocket uh, scientist who put this thing together. He's 90 years old. He's spry. He's an interesting character. We've thought about bringing him on the show for, uh, for many a year. And we're going to see if we can't make that happen for next week's show as well. And we'll have slightly more to say about that in our third segment today. And we're also going to have a little interesting look at an annual event that takes place in San Francisco Bay where people uh, get in a boat, go out by the uh, south tower of the Golden Gate uh, Bridge, and swim across the Golden Gate. In our second segment today, we'll have a talk with the reigning champ of Golden Gate uh, swimmers. That would be Mr. Bob Roper. And we'll be talking to our environmental correspondent, Jen Davidson, about uh, what she observed in regards to the salmon fishery here on the American River. And uh, we have to warn you, some of it's not a very pretty picture. But let us now commence the show as we'd like to do with On This Date in History. Today's date is December 13th, and it was on December 13th in 1577 that Francis Drake set out from Plymouth, England with five ships and 164 men on a mission to raid Spanish holdings on the Pacific coast of the New World, and while he was at it, explore the Pacific Ocean. Three years later, Drake returned, making him the second person to circumnavigate the Earth. Drake was considered to be a uh, pirate by, uh, by the Spanish authorities, and indeed, the booty he gained from attacking Spanish ships uh, made him and uh, all of the investors that sent him off very wealthy. In his sailing up the San Francisco coast, evidently fog obscured San Francisco Bay from uh, Sir Francis, but he did put in uh, what we think is uh, around what's today named Drake's Bay, just, uh, just north of San Francisco. On this date in 1910, American radio pioneer Lee DeForest arranges the first opera broadcast, although almost no one actually had a radio receiver. DeForest arranged for a broadcast from the stage of New York City's Metropolitan Opera featuring Enrico Caruso. And on December 13, 1928, the New York Philharmonic, playing at Carnegie Hall in New York City, debuted George Gershwin's an American in Paris. Our quote of the day comes from an article in Vanity Fair magazine by David Rose titled, The People vs. the Profiteers. 
how Americans working in Iraq for Halliburton's spinoff, KBR, have been outraged by the massive fraud they saw. Dozens are suing the giant military contractor on the taxpayer's behalf, and the question when the article asks was, whose side is the Justice Department on? We'll have more to say about that, but our quote comes from the man doing the suing, which would be lawyer Alan Grayson. Said Grayson, In my mind, one of the basic reasons, maybe even the basic reason why the war has gone badly, is war profiteering. You could say that the only people who have benefited from the invasion of Iraq are Al-Qaeda, Iran, and Halliburton. And dovetailing with that is our quip of the day, which is from Ernest Hemingway, who once said, A big lie is more plausible than truth. And uh, our joke of the day, which was not used by Uncle John in the Bathroom Reader series, is another uh, great line from Henny Youngman. My wife went to the beauty parlor and got a mud pack. She looked great for two weeks. Then the mud fell off. And our statistics of the day, as it were, come from the 33rd National Survey of Teen Drug Use, which showed that the percent of 12th graders using an illicit drug in the past year dropped from 42% in 1997 to 36% in 2007, a result which was not judged to be statistically significant, but which nevertheless prompted George W. Bush to hail this decade-long decline in teen drug use as proof that his administration's drug interdiction efforts are working. Now, It seems to us here at Radio Parallax that uh, the president has also claimed that we're winning the war in Iraq, and we would judge him roughly equally correct in both areas of endeavor. Let's do the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to The Week magazine, it was a good week this week for vigilance after Iraqi soldiers noticed that the bride in a wedding party passing through a checkpoint near Baghdad not only was remarkably ugly, but had also had a five o'clock shadow. The bride, as well as the groom and several of the celebrants, turned out to be men suspected of terrorist activities. It was, on the other hand, a bad week for visual aids after a German policeman (laughs) demonstrated how he made arrests to a second-grade class by handcuffing the teacher. When the cop went to remove the cuffs, he realized he had lost the key. The teacher remained handcuffed until a backup key arrived. And finally, it was kind of an ugly week this week for working your way through college. After two Ohio students were sentenced to 20 years in jail for two armed robberies. I needed more money for college, explained Christopher Avery, a 22-year-old engineering major at the University of Cincinnati. He and his accomplice, a theater major at the University of Toledo, told the judge they decided it was better to rob stores than to drop out. Now, we'd like to make it clear that here on Radio Parallax, we believe that if it's at all possible, kids, you should stay in school. However, if you have to resort to armed holdups in order to stay in school, well, it may be better to take some time off and earn a little extra cash uh, on the job. 
All right, and from the Only in America file, we have the following. Legend has it that Davy Crockett killed a bear when he was three years old. And now a distant relative of the 19th century frontiersman has done the same thing at age five. According to his grandfather, Tree Merritt, a five-year-old boy from Arkansas, shot and killed a black bear. Said Mike Merritt, Tree's grandfather, the bear came in about 40 to 50 yards, and when he got in the open, I whistled at him and he stopped. And I said, shoot, Tree! And that's what the grandson did, killing the 400-pound animal. I was up in the stand and I seen a bear. Tree Merritt told KATV of Little Rock, Arkansas. It came from the thicket, and it was beside the road, and I shot it. <laughs> here's, here's the most disturbing part. According to the report, Tree's father said his son began shooting when he was two and a half and killed three deer last year. Killed him a bar when he was only three. Davy, Davy Crockett, king of the wild frontier. I don't know. Other nations look at us and think there's something wrong with the people that put rifles in the hands of two-and-a-half-year-olds to have them shoot deer. And I think they're right. And from the no-we're-not-making-this-up file concerning lawyers, we have this item. Former Attorney General Alberto Gonzalez lost his job for, well, numerous reasons. This, however, did not stop him from winning an award from the American Bar Association. That would be Lawyer of the Year. And no, we're not making this up. The man who decided that the Geneva Convention didn't apply to American behavior was voted Lawyer of the Year by the American Bar Association. In defense of their choice, editor and publisher Edward A. Adams said, Think about Time Magazine's Person of the Year. In years past, they've named people like Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin. So we're not suggesting by these awards that these are the best lawyers in any sense of the word. We are saying the mo they are the most newsworthy and perhaps also the best. Yeah, it's pretty cuckoo. Adams said the magazine's pick do not necessarily reflect the official policy of the ABA. The American Bar Association is made up of about 400,000 lawyers here in the United States, which, by the way, contains 80% of the world's lawyers. That's right, 4% of the world's population, 80% of the world's lawyers. And as an addendum, we would point out that other high-profile lawyers that were nominated for this distinction, including Monica M. Goodling, the Justice Department's liaison to the White House, who quit in April amid a political firestorm, and, and we're not making this up, I. Lewis Scooter Libby, Vice President Dick Cheney's former chief of staff, who was convicted of perjury and obstruction of justice in the investigation into the leaked identity of former CIA operative Valerie Wilson. Yes, insert your own lawyer joke here. All right, let's talk a little about the media. There's been some good news of late in that... Uh, there's been quite a bit of reporting on the intelligence information. This is data that surfaced last week about the U.S.'s intelligence estimate regarding Iran, which noted that in direct contradiction to the Bush administration's contention that Tehran has been working steadily toward building a nuclear weapon, 
that in fact, Iran halted its secret effort to develop a nuclear weapon four years ago and doesn't appear to have restarted the project. It does appear that this long-awaited uh, NIE uh, is a rather stunning reversal of, of the conclusion of the 2005 estimate. And by the way, contrasts sharply with recent statements by President Bush, Vice President Dick Cheney, and many of the top Republican presidential candidates. Uh, what does it all mean? It means that in the last uh, 13 months of the Bush administration, it would appear that we're not going to war with Iran. Despite the best efforts of people like William Podoritz, who, by the way, is advising Rudy Giuliani about what to do if he becomes president, uh, to bomb Iran, it appears we're not going to do so. Now, the Iranians do have centrifuges. They are busily uh, at work uh, trying to, um, to create um, materials that can be used in a nuclear program. But uh, Tehran's been saying these are going to go for peaceful uses of uh, atomic energy, and this report seems to back them up. Now, make no mistake about it, the Iranian regime, which, uh, whose front man is President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, but in fact, the guy pulling the strings is Ayatollah Khamenei. This is not exactly the most level-headed among the world family of nations. But it now seems clear, it was, well, it's, it's been clear to us on this program, and we hope to you as well, that this has been a lot of hot air. And uh, now that certain people in the intelligence uh, field have come forward to grab center stage and say, no, what you've been told is not true, we, it looks as though we're going to dodge the bullet on another Iraq. We'd still like to get James Bamford on this program to talk about uh, uh, some of those best efforts of the neocons because, uh, you know, this danger is not going to go away uh, anytime, you know, immediately, but certainly, um, certainly this is a breath of fresh air. Oh, and speaking of a bit of, of good news or potential good news, I, I, I've been meaning to, to, to bring to your attention the fact that tonight, the night of December 13th to 14th, uh, we may have quite a show in the sky with the annual Geminid meteor shower. In recent years, this has turned out to be the best annual meteor shower, even better than summer's Perseid meteors. Uh, most meteor showers are the result of a comet debris left from the passage of comets through the inner solar system. It turns out that uh, this particular meteor shower uh, comes about from the passage of an asteroid. A lot of asteroids are thought to be, uh, you know, basically giant gravel piles out in space, and... Uh, and the, uh, the interaction of the Earth's orbit with this particular uh, asteroid means that these meteors tend to be slow and big and, uh, and pretty spectacular. So uh, you may want to consider going out tonight and taking a look. All meteor showers are best seen after midnight, so you may want to get up tonight and take a look. Let's do a little bit of astronomy here, take a little digression here. There's some, uh, this is according to Fox News, so... Take it for what it's worth. But actually, no, Fox News appears to be accurately reporting the fact that some recent studies of the asteroid Apophysis indicates that although it's definitely not going to hit us in the year 2029, depending on how it swings past the Earth, it might hit us seven years later. We've talked about this on the show before, and we'll talk about it again. It's not exactly breaking news, but uh, you know, we do hope that... Uh, uh, good observations and good calculations will enable us to determine what's going to happen in the next couple decades. And if it is, by chance, going to hit the Earth, we need to go out and do something about it. 
Because you got to keep in mind, this asteroid's about 700 to 1,000 feet across. And the object that blew that nice big hole in the Arizona desert was about 70 feet across. All right, we talked a while back about Vanity Fair, what a good magazine we thought it was. Uh, Sam McManus, writing in The Bee, talked a little bit about Vanity Fair recently as well. Um, we, we have to refer you to a couple of articles in the current edition. That David Rose article about the people versus the profiteers is one we need to report more fully on for you in the future. We'll just quote one paragraph uh, talking about lawyer Alan Grayson's efforts to sue uh, crooked contractors that are screwing the U.S. taxpayer out of his uh, hard-earned money. Notes that over the past 16 years, Grayson has litigated dozens of cases of contractor fraud. In many of these, he has found the Justice Department to be an ally in exposing wrongdoing. But in cases that involve the Iraq War, the DOJ has taken extraordinary steps to stand in his way. Behind its machinations, he believes, is a scandal of epic proportions. We also want to talk about their article titled The Mega Bunker of Baghdad, how the new American embassy in Baghdad will be the largest, least welcoming, and most lavish embassy in the world at a cost of $600 million. But I do know that author William Langoisha had an excellent interview with Terry Gross, on her program, Fresh Air, we may need to just refer you to that. But we'll try and mention that in the weeks to come as well. But the, the article that I did thoroughly go over uh, for today's program was the one titled White House Civil War. It was advertised as uh, the inside story of how uh, Clinton and Gore failed to cooperate in 2000, how this s sort of slowly evolved throughout uh, the Clinton presidency and, and led to basically George Bush becoming president. The rather lengthy article was an excerpt from an upcoming book titled For Love of Politics, Bill and Hillary Clinton, The White House Years. But as this correspondent was plowing through this article, it started out talking about uh, the early uh, years of the Clinton administration. It seemed to be on the mark. Uh, as I was reading along further and further, it started to get screwier and screwier. The recurrent theme in the article seemed to be that Hillary Clinton seemed to be at the center of all the wrongdoing in, in, in political planning. That it was Hillary's run for the Senate in 2000 that siphoned off needed campaign funds from Al Gore and, and undoubtedly contributed significantly to Gore's narrow loss to George Bush. So I'm, I'm reading along and thinking, this is really not passing the smell test. The article is scarcely mentioning impeachment. It does mention it a little bit. But I'm thinking, who, who's more responsible for uh, Al Gore's loss in 2000? The recently departed Henry Hyde and the GOP that uh, spared no expense to impeach Bill Clinton? And by the way, as an aside, it should be clear to anyone listening that the Republicans had no intention of actually impeaching and removing Bill Clinton from office in 1998. To have done so would have made his vice president, Al Gore, the chief executive and the incumbent in the 2000 election. I mean, that's clear, isn't it? As Vincent Bugliosi pointed out in his book about uh, the whole debacle of impeaching Clinton, the case should have never been allowed to go forward. Speaking of the Paula Jones case, as a sitting president, this could have been deferred until the end of the presidency. In normal circumstances, such litigation would have been put secondary to the affairs of state. 
Once it was allowed to go forward and they knew that the president was going to lie, they managed to get him under oath after illegally taping Monica Lewinsky, et cetera, et cetera. It was a very sordid affair. And again, the point seems to have been to drive a wedge between Clinton and Gore, something it did very successfully. Had Gore run on the Clinton-Gore team's legacy, or had Clinton actively campaigned in you know, any of several states for Gore, the outcome would undoubtedly have been different. But as I'm reading this article, it seems that no, in fact, according to the author, Hillary Clinton is to blame for all of this. So I flip back, looking for the author's name, and buried in very small letters near the beginning, it's revealed that uh, the book, For the Love of Politics, Bill and Hillary Clinton, The White House Years, is written by a woman named Sally Bedell Smith. All right, students of history, here's your quiz for you. Does the name Bedell Smith ring any bells? We'll pause a second to let you ponder that. And note that you do get to go to the head of the class if you recall that the fourth head of the Central Intelligence Agency was Walter Bedell Smith. One of Eisenhower's uh, right-hand men uh, during uh, World War II and the man usually referred to as Ike's Hatchet Man. Now, it turns out, uh, upon further investigation, that Sally Bedell Smith has written a rather unfavorable book about JFK's White House. And since people associated with the Central Intelligence Agency seem to have something of a cottage industry going in what we call the second assassination of JFK, one would wonder whether this book and the Hillary book uh, might be written by someone with some rather profound connections to our own CIA. So we put a call in to Lisa Pease down in L.A., one of our, uh, our, our crack investigators. Uh, Lisa was, of course, the, one of the co-publishers of Probe magazine for many years, which you know probed many an aspect of America's uh, political underside. And uh, she came up blank, too. Lisa checked the New York Times obituary for Walter Bedell Smith, and meanwhile I checked uh, everything I could find about Sally Bedell Smith, and neither seems to mention the other. But I gotta say, looking at a picture of Walter and looking at a picture of Sally makes me think, boy, she certainly could be his daughter. Oh, and by the way, it turns out that Sally Bedell Smith, who's been writing for Vanity Fair for many years, is also married to the editor of U.S. News and World Report, a magazine which has historically been rather astoundingly friendly to our intelligence agencies. Does this mean that uh, intelligence operatives are slanting the news here in the U.S.? Well, maybe in this instance it's not proof, but we think they are. And I did find this list of, uh, of, of appearances, media appearances, by Sally Bedell Smith to promote her book, A Little Suspicious. Back in, uh, back in October, she uh, ran the table on the following uh, uh, radio interviewers. Let's see. She was in the Today Show. She was on Meet the Press. And then she followed it up with Fox News, special report with Britt Hume, Fox News Radio, Brian and the Judge, The Laura Ingraham Show, uh, Michael Medved's Show, uh, Fox News Channel with Hannity and Combs, and finally talks with Chris Matthews and Tim Russert. The right wing seems to be embracing Sally Bedell Smith. And you may have noticed they, they don't seem to like Hillary very much. If you know whether Sally is the daughter of Walter, uh, please send us an email at info at radioparallax.com. If she is, we think she should embrace the familial relationship and make it clear to all what her family background is. 
And I want to talk about an excellent article in the scene section of the Sacramento Bee, Sam McManus, talking about an activist group who has an eye on local TV to make sure stations are on the job when it comes to major political stories. But we'll have to postpone that a little bit to our second segment because we're up against it for the break here. So let's take that break. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. Stay tuned. We're caught in a See you. 